Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Can Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to Ahali Conversations. And we are back. Our second season is pretty much about notions of practice. We will be exploring how cultural producers do their work, whether they are artists, designers, curators or writers. And together we will figure out how they position themselves within the larger context that they inhabit. So welcome back to this new season of Ahali Conversations. Meriç Öner is the current director of SALT, a cultural, or rather as Meriç elaborates, a research institution that spans multiple venues in Istanbul, Ankara, and online. SALT was founded 10 years ago by Vasif Kortun, who was our guest on episode 6. And Meriç was there from the beginning as an architect and researcher as part of the Garanti Gallery forming one third of this merger. I think this conversation is remarkable as it challenges some very basic preconceptions around art institutions like has the exhibition format become a burden for cultural institutions? Can we think beyond the book or the exhibition for an experiential reception of research processes? And furthermore, is that public benefit aspect of cultural institutions something actually enforced or does it really come as a demand by the publics? But in retrospect, how can institutions deal with the actual demands by the audiences, such as becoming study spaces or Instagram backgrounds? I think Merich's proposal boils down to imagining the next art institution as a kind of academy not only as a site of education, but also as a provider of exchange, a social platform where knowledge intermingles with and through the people. You can check out our Instagram at Ahali Podcast if you're curious about how the spaces and works we mentioned actually look like, or dive into our usual rabbit hole we call the episode notes, our ever-expanding bibliography of Ahali. So Merich, welcome. Thanks for joining us. And maybe we can start with briefly like your history and move on to SALT because I think they are connected and you've been uh, working with the institution both before its incarnation. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so thank you for the invitation, first of all. Well, I I should maybe start by saying that I decided to study architecture as a kid in a sense but it was I was really not informed at all because I didn't have anyone in my family like I mean you could think of a context where someone would inspire herself to become an architect mine was more like looking inside houses homes and trying to feel how other people live and kind of finding a way to be part of it I guess which sounds mature and then the education I studied at Istanbul Technical University it's somehow fulfilled some of these I would say these expectations that this I mean what you're doing also at this moment this ability to practice some kind of dream in a sense in a dreamscape uh, it was I would say it was a good decision to take the education what actually added more for my personal interest was the subject that aligned with architecture more through architecture history that for the first time because I studied in a very typical Turkish education in the within the Turkish education system where geography was kind of memorizing a number of uh, yields according to the region or history was trying to know by heart all these dates when what happened but through architecture I think uh, it was possible for me to understand a true meaning at least a meaning for me of geography of history of how people live and it's very close to what I was kind of maybe prompted me to study architecture as a kid and so it kind of enabled me to think through materials, the climates, yeah, all, all, all things that connect to Earth, in a sense. But at the same time, this I have always been vocally critical, I think, uh, of uh, ITU uh, in my time. Or maybe it wasn't just ITU, but I started studying at 97. 
through 2001, uh, which is probably the prime time of the ideology, I would say, of the architect was somehow it wasn't what they were teaching us, but it was the aura, I guess, even in Turkey. Some of the professors who maybe still teach at Bilgi, then they became our professors as well. But it felt intimidating. I mean, the idea of architecture I had without knowing anything in my mind and the idea of architecture that was within the magazines and within what we were trying to follow was too different. The scale was different. It had to be big. It had to be international. It had to be something else than I thought I was capable of, very honestly. But at the same time, it felt frustrating because I would like to be the architect of the neighborhood. It always felt I was living in Jaddebostan where like everyone was breaking and building their homes inside just decoration in a sense the plumber was there or like the uh, the tailor was there still at the time but like why couldn't I have an office just by where people would ask something professional from me and I didn't follow any of these ideas I kind of maybe broke my interest it, it broke my interest in practice so I'm not a good person to speak about architectural practice at all so in the end I started working for, very luckily, with Pelin Darish for a project that was to survey Mardin as a UNDP project. It was the United Nations Development Program for two years, for more than two years. And this was, this time it was a survey, both of history in a sense, but at the same time, what else is home than what I know as an apartment, say, in Istanbul. And Mardin is, of course, I mean, it's a, it's a city of magic, I would say. And we were really lucky. It was at the time very low key, uh, touristically, I would say. Um, so within that, I think I it kind of opened up these geographies also of Turkey in a sense. And it, it stayed with me. So I worked in Adiyaman. I worked in, I mean, I had the chance to work in Halfiti, so all through many connections. And then I ended up deciding at a moment where we were designing at the office with Pelin Darish, a renovation of a big hotel in Cappadocia. Um, I decided that I had to find a way to work in what I called culture uh, but to talk about architecture in this greater sense, which now I call, I, I don't enjoy it, but I still call it the built environment, maybe to kind of give it a bigger, yeah, just a bigger, at least scale to be more inclusive. And yeah, after that, I started following and uh, this, I would say, idea, which ended up me uh, working for the World Architecture Congress. It's something that happens once every three years. I mean, if you have an image of the Chamber of Architects, it's the international version of Chamber of Architects. It's not fancy. It's a very different, I would say, environment, but very serious people on architecture. And here, the Istanbul case was a big victory uh, for the Chamber that they tried to have this in Istanbul for years. It, it was in 2005, and they really did have magical number of, in a sense, keynote speakers where these both the architects and I would say the grounded one, the rooted one, like Hans Holland and people really showed up uh, in Istanbul. After that, I did a, a master's study and my the only reason was actually to go deeper in theory. And uh, I applied to a couple of universities in the US. I didn't get any scholarship. I was accepted just by one school and that was doing hardcore practice-based architecture. I decided not to go. So I ended up going to Bilgi uh, under scholarship the first term uh, when they opened up this graduate program. It was, again, uh, unfortunately, practice-based. But the reason I wanted to go was to take lessons from Sibel Boldan, Murat Kivanch, and Issam Bingin. And I took whatever they gave. And it, it really, I guess, helped me a lot to kind of feed this kind of thirst. Because, again, at ITU during maybe at undergraduate studies, I don't think I even learned as much of Istanbul as I did with in the Bilgi curriculum. Then I jumped to, as John said, jumped to Salt in a sense, because I started working at Garant Gallery in 2007. But the reason I was hired was uh, Salt was already in the making and they were trying to enlarge the team. So I was working again with Pelin Darvish. Back then she was the director. It was the smallest scale of institutions. It was like a 70 or 90 square meter gallery space. They would do six exhibitions a year. They would deal with design in, a, in the greater sense. So it might be something more about urban culture. It could be something of fashion. It could be something they did very, I guess, I think, exciting projects, actually. And I worked a couple of years under Garanti Galeri while we were trying to build salt. I think it was really interesting to hear your story, first and foremost. It was very relatable to everyone who's listening. 
And also this question of like the wider interest in the built environment as a kind of cultural realm or as a cultural production, which then includes obviously geography, history, maybe anthropology and all these kind of what are called the humanities in a sense and maybe even social sciences. So that's that was also really interesting. And now, like, in a way, historically, we have come to the point and... So it would be good because our listeners might not be aware SALT was a, actually a culmination of a number of institutions, yeah. one of which you were, as you said, already participating, the Garanti Gallery. There was Platform, which was more focused on contemporary art, and they had an archive, they had an exhibition space, and the residency as well, if I'm correct, yes. It's true, yeah, yeah. And then the third one was the Ottoman... Bank Museum, or correct me if I'm like, what's the right? Uh, research, archive and Research Center, which included the museum. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. And now that, like, now you are in a kind of lead position of the whole institution, looking back, how do you see these, this merger of, like, these very distinct modes of understanding practice, understanding research, understanding archives and archiving, and almost like different traditions of thought also coming together. Definitely. I mean... How, how did it evolve into the one thing? Because it's now very much... It still has many dimensions, but as an institution, it has a very kind of solid existence in a positive sense. True, true, true. I mean, I think a lot of whatever you plan, a lot of things both happen organically and a lot of things happen through people. So I should say that first. So it's not because we built, it's also, I think, a, a great clue to what you're about to do. So you don't build an institution on paper. I mean, you can build the best institution on paper, but that's not how life works. So uh, I mean, by that, I mean, it's not about rules and regulations or whatever, or the fancy mission or vision. It's, it's the people who really make it happen. But the initial idea of maintaining, in a sense, the heritage of these three institutions, but really transforming them into an environment as much as possible of cross-disciplinary conversations was the key. And I think, again, this was then early to late 2000s. The, the very funny thing is maybe the I would say the best for me, the way I always interpreted it, the best thing that happened probably to Turkey, in my opinion, is that it doesn't have, say, a modern art museum. Like it doesn't have these two, three, whatever centuries of or or other types of museums. Because what built this architect for the through the eighties and nineties, again in the two thousands, uh, there was this talk of, and I'm sure maybe Janya would have more to say on it, of this uh, transdisciplinarity, multidiscipline. And I'm sure maybe you had even been invited in Europe, which I think is very archaic in thinking in most of these matters, because they have these expertise, these areas where people do not want to really clash. What was interesting for me to learn throughout the time was artists were the people who really made that happen, actually, in the 90s, maybe throughout time. Mm-hmm. But this moment of digging through different disciplines and not remaining academic about them, but remaining more vocal, provocative in a sense. So you could say Salt took that on mm-hmm. as not shying away from making mistakes in a sense, not being the authority of areas of information. But in the end, so this multidisciplinarity would mean it almost to me sounded like a joke where one would say, okay, one architect, one artist, and one sociologist <laughs> went into a bar. It was I mean, you you know those times. So it's, <laughs> we knew it wasn't about that. And it was possible through the team that we really, when we sat down, when I was doing an exhibition, when someone else was doing something, it was possible, maybe Bahar experienced it a bit, to go and speak to someone that's sitting next to you with a different kind of knowledge set and mm. skill set, in a sense. So what I meant by the typical European archaic whatever institution is that they come with these departments. And I mm. think this was very important that this was Vasa Fortune's vision, the founding director's vision, that SALT didn't have any departments. I didn't have the uh, experience to understand what that meant in the day. It didn't matter to me, but we don't have a photography and architecture and whatever department. It's We have people who work on research and who work on programming. So that's the structure mm-hmm. of SALT, which means the foundation of the institution is research and programs. And research both might include these archives that we keep building, which later start to speak to each other. So the archive between 2011 and 2021 
be two separate, I mean, two distinct entities, really. Mm. Because at this moment, you can go into the art archive and then you will see that one of the artists during one of the meetings that we archive is actually sitting next to this architect who we also archive back at Salt, which means that you can really study the the relations, the environment of what happened in the 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever. So this helps you not to detach the object, which mm -hmm. is the main problem of the museum in a sense, from the relations. We decided the decision from the start was to actually almost divorce ourselves from the object. Of course, there are objects that are exhibited. There are objects that spark conversation. But the, act, the, the main focus is the conversation itself. So that's why the archive matters in a sense. It's not because these are beautiful documents that we would like to touch them. They're all digital. You don't even touch them. So within it kind of provides you maybe a way to fill the gaps. As a parenthesis and to paraphrase what you said, because you said some really important things. And I think that would be useful in thinking about the institutions, imagining the institutions that are to come. One is like this almost artistic vision starting from us Corton to disregard any categories or any categorical or departmental compartmental distinction within the activities besides research and programs one is probably more inward looking and one is probably more outward looking like i may sure, be reading sure. into it but feels a bit like that and then the another critical thing is detaching as an institution detaching oneself from the object rather than detaching the object itself, which is what the museums, as we know it, do. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's like really crucial in also understanding what kind of an institution SALT is. This distinction is very helpful in understanding what it proposes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for putting it in a much better way. And I should say that this, of course, this evolved. This is not something that happens in, in a day, but it ended up putting these different yeah, different disciplines, in a sense, in one room. But then it actually relies on the question. Mm -hmm. And the question might be asked by just one of us, or question might be the, the urgency of the moment. The idea of uh, producing a response is, I think, more object-based, but the idea of trying to explore different aspects of the... So maybe salt could be say also um, not an inspiration i don't mean to say it like in a big effect but it could also be an academy of the 21st century but we called ourselves the cultural institution of the 21st century where by academia i mean is not this fear of making mistakes i guess maybe that's the core where it's possible to explore and fail in a sense mm -hmm. so the questions do matter most for the reason that we actually don't know the answers. And the, mm. my problem with the the institutions of 19th, 20th century is they seem to be owner of truth or, or the owner of the knowledge, the owner of the, some sort of authority. And it's almost like role playing, which I never, I mean, I have to say, I've always been shocked by the idea that I do this job today because I never claimed myself any sort of authority. And somehow it was accepted by, by salt in a sense. So the authority means that you know, you have to know, you have to always have to have an answer. Whereas the reality is I know one bit and the other one knows another bit. And, and the beautiful thing is to try and put those together and, and try to be as open as possible uh, for the discussion and for the conversation. So maybe we do that at some moments or more openly, more visibly, in a sense. But we started exploring more and more, I would say, in the time. Also, some, I mean, different methods of making, doing this. Like, because we ask questions and then we find people to talk through those questions. Hmm. Would you like to give some examples so it's yeah. kind of clarifies better in our in yeah. everybody's mind? First of all, I have to say, which is uh, not a very good thing in my position to say, that I find the idea of exhibition to be the ultimate goal, to be mm -hmm. really, 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 really wrong, in a sense. Mm -hmm. that, that's what I could say. So I, I mean, my dream institution would have the opportunity of making or not making an exhibition. Like the moment the research validates an exhibition, it's there. The moment it's, it should be ephemeral, it should be just discussions. It doesn't have to be there because all institutions are kind of put through this almost like in hamster wheels through these mm -hmm. cycles of production and we're talking 
at SALT, we're talking about resources a lot in many different ways, about providing resources, which could be the archive, but which could also be, I mean, the feeds to artists. It, it could also be our time, like right now. So while we're doing that, putting this emphasis on the exhibition is like it's it's always where the biggest portion of budget and the biggest time goes. So it's very difficult to, this is for the people, but at the same time, very difficult to know the real impact for the people. So according to this, I would say we have been working on an exhibition. Uh, we have been working with a duo called Cooking Sections. They reside in the UK. But they have this project that's called Climavore, where they're looking at how to eat, as they call it, uh, as humans change the climate. So the climate change, it's not about hushing ourselves to do not to do one thing or another thing, but to then look at how we produce and how we consume food. So this is their topic. And, and they look at it uh, over continents. The very beautiful thing about them is they're obsessed with this, which means they know more than many people. They're not like, I mean, in, in the sense that they're not, they're researching this in different angles. So we've been looking at Turkey, and this is a process that takes three years. So we started chatting, and then we started working, and, and they make us work really a lot. So now we, we will have five sections. I mean, it's, so there will be different five topics. One is the buffaloes of Istanbul, but the buffalo milk is their concentration. Another is the, the fish farms, how they actually change the ecosystem of the water. Another thing is how the Black Sea through millennia is becoming the Mediterranean, which is now a very a quickened process, I would say, that the, the whole ecosystem is changing. So, and a couple more. So this research made us contact the forestry department of the Istanbul University. They are brilliant people. They read through the sections of the trees. They can read meteorology. I mean, they can read climate changes back like hundreds of years. We met someone from Ankara University who did DNA samples of the from the water to understand whether the farm fish has invaded some place in in around Izmir. And then we met many other people who, uh, because there's this section on fertility, infertility, the land, the soil is now so exhausted that it can cause infertility. And, and, and Turkey is where most of the civilization is whatever is assumed to be from, one of the places at least. Uh, but then Turkey is also the place where the IVF treatment is a, a part of, I mean, the Tüpebek uh, is part of the tourism, health tourism. It's in the past five years. So there are people who study these different topics, who, who gave us information. So this is a process. It's quite an inward process. You're right. And at the exhibition, you will probably, if you yeah, give yourself maybe to the exhibition, you can get all of these, but probably can't. It's not something you can absorb at this moment. And it always felt like this is not something that will happen soon. Like there should be the institution, like an institution like SALT with both the experience and the people who are working, whatever, could be just this research space. Mm. So the, the exhibition is the cherry on top at this moment because it's very exciting. But does it have to be the space to show this or does it have to be the space for, for making these explorations? That's why I said academia, because academia does, doesn't do this, for instance. Yeah, I think we're also can't help but we we can't help but fall back into like the formats that we are familiar with. We have been discussing this notion of the museum of practice. And by museum of practice, we are trying to frame it in a way that doesn't look at objects per se. I mean, it can, but it's looking at also intangible cultural production. It's looking at questions of cultural heritage. It's looking at kind of modes of operating, making, and this can include researching exactly. or cultures of, you know, doing things. And then try to imagine how would a museum that in a way focuses on such cultural production can exist. Something that I see SALT is doing and is very much aligned with that, with a similar exploration in a sense of thinking about cultural production, both as a wider frame and also being able to dive into topics with cultural producers, with artists, with researchers, with academics. But I think you said something that's also very useful for everyone is that the exhibition format in and of itself or the question of display in and of itself 
is today no longer enough. I mean, it provides another kind of experience, that's for sure. It, for, it provides other kinds of reading. But with, especially with research or with kind of knowledge, there seems to be a need of invention and kind of imagination that goes beyond the book and the exhibition. Definitely, definitely. I think, I mean, what I have enjoyed at SALT, at least, is we don't use this terminology of participation. I mean, it's it's very difficult. I think institutions should be layered, and SALT already is. I mean, all institutions probably are, but it's never been a space for a small, and I'll just say it for the sake of saying, elite, let's say, a community of even artists, let's call it. Because it's also been open to the researchers. And the researchers are, I would say, daily people. They, they, they come with questions and they really appreciate the feedback, whatever. So there's this dimension of having a greater core, which is not the artist, only the artist. So it's, it's thousands of people, really, who are really part of the program because they contribute to it or they trigger it or they respond to something. But then there's always, of course, this layer and uh, we all feel the pressure more than ever that once while we have these resources, they should be both open to the public. It's a self-pressuring, which is beautiful. But at the same time, of course, all these institutions, they have mechanisms that, that make them live. The, the very problematic thing about cultural institutions is that people don't pay for them. So if I were just ticketing, I mean, I don't mean ticketing in the visas, but if I were just making an exhibition, I would love to see the day when I'm making an exhibition in my apartment and someone pays, comes and pays to see it. Uh, but somehow this has always been the property and responsibility either of the state or like SALT at this moment, is the property and, and, and the responsibility of a bank, which is weird uh, at the same time. I mean, not, not weird, but that's how it works. So it's private or public, but it doesn't actually make itself, it it hasn't ever become useful for the public themselves. So it's, it's, I don't mean to say it's something we're pushing, but at the same time, it's strange to know that. I mean, you have to always acknowledge that, that what you're doing, somewhat people are not lining to uh, actually cover the expenses of what you're doing. With research, uh, it's a bit, for me, Research makes it more open because people who can really appreciate it are, are part of it. So I don't know whether they would pay, but it gives some gravity to it. Whereas the exhibition in the end is very funnily, I mean, to me, that the, might be the most inspiring from time to time, but at the same time, the most superficial layer of the institution. It's the outcome, in a sense, which is beautiful. But at the same time, it's where you touch people who are not maybe that interested. So not using this terminology of participants or participating or whatever, uh, but trying to really not tell the story that we would like to tell, but to get people to somehow involved in it. And this will be a, still a very small group of people. That's part of the practice, I think. I mean, if you're talking about a museum of practice, uh, it's where people can be part of it growingly. And that's uh, what I learned again, and I don't know how to make it work for exhibitions at this moment, is actually, again, from research, because we have 1,800,000, like almost 2 million objects online, which have, I mean, some of them are written in the Ottoman Turkish, some of them are in Armenian, whatever. And we're just people who are processing these documents and giving them keywords and whatever, and make many mistakes along the way. And I love the process. Because our mistakes are always, I mean, not always, hopefully always, are corrected by researchers themselves. So we receive like emails or Facebook notices even uh, saying that what we wrote as the date for that, say we couldn't read the Ottoman script. I mean, we have people who do that, but we read it wrong for some reason. Uh, there's there's a correction. So it's really participatory. Someone takes the responsibility of, of interacting to make sure that that document reaches people correctly. So, I mean, you are in a sense uh, talking about a, a community that kind of surrounds on many different levels an institution or how I prefer to call it an ahali True. that is generated around around the institution. Do you do anything to maintain that or does it remain organic or do you keep track or I don't know? I think it changes, it grows, it shrinks also according mm -hmm. to the topic. But probably the idea, I mean, we, we try to make more steps. Like we started this 
program called uh, Researchers at Salt, which we made announcements throughout the building and on social media to say that we would like to listen to what you're researching at Salt. I mean, it, mm. you might just be using the desk within the library, but we would like to learn from you. So we did a couple of these series, not too many, but for 20 minutes, everybody was talking about their own project mm. and it was announced people could come and listen. The the useful art office, the office of useful art, it was meant to actually have this moment mm. where Alistair was talking about what useful art meant. There were kids behind, like high school students doing their homeworks and one girl just started listening. So that that that's I think you can really do that in space. Uh, but salt has this, I would say, this problem of dimension because we I think from our experiences which will be very intimate in a sense, but we knew how to run Garanti Galeria platform and all of that. And we ran SALT as if it were still mm. all those institutions, in, not in the sense of disciplines or whatever, but like in these small universes, touching and going from time to time. But the actual scale is big. I mean, the dimension is big. So you're talking about really 15,000 square meters of space in, when you put the two buildings together, for instance. So there are opportunities that I think is missed. So if I if I had the opportunity of keeping the research efforts intact, but having a looser, maybe serving less people system of these, but actually this is a big institution, one way or another. I mean, it's small scale when compared to many, let's say, internationally big institutions. Uh, but still, for Istanbul, it's a big institution, and that kind of it's huge. It's huge. It's huge. <laughs> I think big would be humble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So within that, there are also many missed opportunities, uh, mm. which means going back to your question, not all relations I think can be maintained at the same level. But we try to keep try to remain open, and it was very interesting. The, in the recent weeks, we did a couple of we tried to do some surveys with. 80 people responded, people who most of them worked with us. Mm -hmm. and, and even some of the people who worked with us, they claim we're distant, we're very strict, we're not, I mean, some people were not mm -hmm. flexible. And for the researchers, we're just the opposite of that. Like we're mm -hmm. open, we're helpful, we're whatever, useful. So I think it's also about the expectations of the people who uh, you communicate with and not all of them can be met but yeah having a healthy growth of the community it seems definitely within the scale more possible in the midst of pandemic we started speaking to artists of what they were doing and what we were supposed to do what was supposed to happen next and we were it was even in this shock period it was very early on and slowly we started building a program that i think we did 10 last year and we're doing six this year Pishun Kare Mustafa is doing one soon, where artists wrote their questions. I mean, they were mostly artists. That's why I call them artists. It's not because they were artists, but people we worked with before. They put their questions on the table. So they initiated this conversation with people who applied to be part of the study group, that you would have a reason to be part of that. And, and the artists select the people. So it's, it's a small, sometimes it was like six sessions. Sometimes it was just one, two, three. Part of the program was public, uh, that everybody could listen, but they all had a smaller discussions. So this to me is a way of maintaining actually a thinking, a discussing environment mm -hmm. rather than trying to serve it, which wouldn't be possible. So there were 30 people, let's say, who were part of this project. I mean, the artists, we won't show each and every one of them's work. It's not about, I mean, the exhibition should yeah. not also be about trying to maintain the life for the artist, which is difficult, but I mean, which we should be supporting, but to maintain the discussion, maybe in two, three years, many of these will turn into something else. And everyone kept, as I know, uh, some of these groups still meet at this moment. So initiating these seemed very crucial to me, but this is very, very, very small portion of the huge uh, scale, but very years. Yeah, but I think it also links to what you said about thinking about the academy or rethink, like imagining the... Exactly next academy so it kind of tags along to that and also i think it tags along to how you mentioned the kind of appreciation or the expectation about various users on the one hand there are users who are kind of in a way benefiting from the generosity of salt by using the infrastructure using the spaces and things and then there are users who are more who claim a more active 
in a sense, role or who aspire for a more active role in through programs and stuff like that. And they, you mentioned a kind of slight disappointment, or I, I may be misreading it, but this kind of expectation. And these study groups, in a way, seems to level these yeah. to a certain extent, which is both open. And as far as I understand, SALT is kind of facilitating exactly and providing a kind of infrastructure for this to happen. So it's in a way leveling and kind of bringing them bringing these two distinct positions in somewhere in the middle. This was really valuable and wonderful. I have one last question and then we can open to questions from the group as well. And the, my final question is about the context because you started off your our conversation by saying that you were looking around and seeing like how people live and then you notice other modes of living. And so SALT occupies two big, quite large buildings, as you mentioned. And they are in uh, both in Pera, roughly, in the, let's say, historically Istanbul, more maybe non-Muslim area, and not the peninsula, but the kind of north of the peninsula area. And they are both, both contexts have been undergoing uh, change, and they are also very specific characters. So, like, anything you want to say about the context and how SALT relates, how the buildings or the venues relate to where where they are or any changes you have been observing? Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, first of all, you, you should also keep in mind that we didn't even say this, but SALT is free for all. So, it's always been imagined as public space itself. It might be run privately, uh, but it's not limiting and so the library is actually as as you already said in South Galata is in the embodiment of how public South wants to be in a sense I like within expectations there's always been discussion but the context of course it changed and I guess some of the some of the changes could even can be triggered or can be interpreted by the institutions themselves. Mm-hmm. So we don't have anything to do for Istiklal. I mean, when Istiklal opened back with, I mean, the pavements were already there, uh, like Yapukredi came back and, and Salt uh, reopened Salt Bay all the space. We kind of, I thought we would have this responsibility of making it back on the map of, say, a different group of people than, than the actual users today. Mm-hmm. But it's not possible. I mean, we have very little effect. So actually, I, I mean, I don't think at this moment. So some things more or like the stigma of Taksim Square, what we feel about Taksim Square, something needs to change for that. Mm-hmm. It's too big for what we can mm-hmm. do. Whereas in South Galata, um, really the library, I think, uh, was this transforming power because it started hosting, especially um, high school students, which is very problematic at this moment for us. I mean, I will be honest about this because Mm. the researchers who need the books, they didn't have any place to study, not at this moment because of the pandemic. Now we only allow by reservation. Uh, So you need to pick a book to come in. Uh, You don't just walk in and sit. would take most 75,000 people, like entries Mm. throughout the year, how many people go in and out. And last year or before the pandemic, it was 3,020, 320,000 people. So the building is beautiful. It became, I know why, a center for, unfortunately, Instagrammers. They even tried to change clothes and do these photo sessions, which were very how <laughs> <laughs> gone, but at the same time, sometimes they get by. They really dress beautifully and come for photos, uh, but also to study, also to see the exhibitions, also for the cafe, whatever. So there we, we had an unexpected turn of events. Uh, in South Galata mm. and if it were I guess if it were like in a very typical institution probably if it were the exhibition space the library space or, or, or the store <laughs> the museum store <laughs> or the or the cafe like, mm. like we were these were the ideas we were given for that beautiful mm. space which was uh, the, the library itself that was the power. I remember we did that uh, project with Alexis Chanel. I mean, Chanel, both Chanel, of course, but we worked with Alexis. And she was saying there were 80 seats in total. And she was saying, well, for a couple of years, you have to all sit there and work there to make it look like the library is working. So you will do this for me. Like 20 of you will be in the space. But we never had to do that. So because that was something that the city truly needed. And that's also about Going back to the beginning of the conversation, why you wouldn't try to copy a museum or whatever, but you would do something that where, I mean, what 
this geography needs or Istanbul needs or whatever. So there, these are two distinct examples where South Paolo is at this moment is not working as it was mm-hmm. supposedly in 2011 when Istanbul was on the, uh, the New York Times for the next uh, art center, how it worked back then and how it worked, how it works now after Gezi and then the bomb and then the Kudeta, whatever it's called in English and like all of that. Mm-hmm. Or, or the attempt for a coup. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I totally hear you, but what you said about Salt Galata is, I think, really thought-provoking and inspiring because it's also a matter of the, like the institution, in a way, half deliberately, but also maybe half by chance or by intuition. I don't think it's chance at all, but by intuition, responding to what the city and what the context really needs And the library turns out to be something like a space to focus, space to study, space to be even alone was what was in a way desperately needed. And that kind of sidelined all the other formats that are available to a cultural institution. Exactly. It even was a, a failure on our end because we wanted not a silent library. We wanted people to come and collaborate, but people needed that space. And they even started hushing like someone on the first floor who's doing something else who's not even in the library. I think people think South Galata is a library only mm. at moments. So it's also strange that things never work the way you would like them to work. But if you probably remain open, I mean, I think Galata is the embodiment of being open to everyone with this very, I mean, this luxurious marble building, just opening doors without asking questions. If you're generous that way, and if you try to follow, and it doesn't mean that you follow what your users want you to do, but you negotiate in between them, like mm-hmm. whether the high school students can should be the main users or, or not. So you, you take the responsibility of adjusting, mm-hmm. not thinking what they want is correct, but trying to move different formats, try also and see if it works or not. Yeah, this is a really good moment to open up to discussions. And of course, the pandemic totally created a break in that story of the building. But I always was, in a way, dreaming about somebody doing a kind of spatial anthropology of Salt Galata and looking like hearing the ways in which it operates by or is operated is brought to work by its users. And I think there is like a really interesting story there. But okay, now, yeah, thank you so much, Mirich. This was first and foremost for me, like totally super uh, informative and inspiring and really good to hear you elaborate. And I hope it was also useful for everyone who's listened, but maybe we can open up to questions or comments if there are any from the group highly conversations are recorded together with participants who can join in the conversation with their questions if you'd also like to take part in these live gatherings visit ahali.space and send us a line via email i was really trying to grasp everything that you say and It was really inspiring. But one thing picked out maybe when you were talking about the um, cooking section, maybe you won't be able to like grasp everything. Or I want to say, is it like possible to grasp everything in all of the exhibitions maybe? Or should the creator aim to make most of the people grasp everything or like Should we take that as a mission? Uh, Excellent question. I have two different answers, I think. There is this thing called in the world mediation, which all these big name institutions, you can imagine, say say Tate, MoMA, whatever, they make things simpler. But I don't think they do a good job of doing that because I had seen an exhibition of Yugoslavian architecture two, three years ago in MoMA. So it was because Yugoslavia, maybe you don't know, was a country that kind of after the 90s is not many, 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 many countries. And they had all these original models, drawings and all of that. And they, they put them in different chapters and sections. But the very difficult thing, and this is really something we have to figure out, I think, I don't call myself a curator, I still call myself a researcher, but I make exhibitions as a researcher. So I try to practice 
according to what you're showing in a sense. But what they made in this Yugoslavian architecture, it kind of drained the meaning out of it because there was no more political, no more social, no more. But it was really just the object and the very beautiful, beautifully designed exhibition, beautiful explanation. So you could go in, consume and leave. I don't believe in this kind of an exhibition, but this is a very, I mean, well put, but uh, MoMA, I don't know how many millions of people they get through their doors. They really probably can pay for whatever they do with their tickets, whatever. So it's a, it's, it's a machine and it's huge and it's always consuming, in my opinion. So let me, yeah, that's one part. And with the cooking sections exhibitions, what I meant to say is you need to give something to get the whole thing. And that's attention. That's some kind of love in a sense. But uh, at the same time, I don't think like everybody, I mean, I don't love each and every exhibition of self. I mean, we are many people here and, and it's, it doesn't have to speak to me. It speaks to, I mean, different colleagues work on different exhibitions and one topic is more interesting to me than the other. So we all have this <laughs> liberty. So nobody has to understand whatever happens at all from, I don't know, head to toe. But I don't think the exhibition that we make or the, the works that we put on uh, in these exhibitions, they're not somehow encrypted. They're they're there. I mean, you you can, but you have to show interest. You if you show, you can you can get the whole thing. So by cooking sections, I meant there's this whole story of if you have a few minutes, like I can say one talk about one of the sections, like the Istanbul buffaloes, as I was saying. So like a hundred years ago, at least, but, but it dates back further even. But definitely a hundred years ago, there was a people from area migrated of Muslim origin. They migrated with their buffalo. There was already some sort of buffalo herding. But especially in Arnavutko, where the new airport is, there have been many queries. And these when in the 70s, 80s, when these were no longer in use, they collected a lot of water. And what the buffalo needs is water, actually. Because the buffaloes are different than the cows and whatever. Now I know more. That they have their route. They start in the morning and then they come back at night. And, and they walk the whole route and they eat but they also go in the water. They're very healthy, sturdy animals, but they need mud to for their parasites to, for instance, dry on them. And then they can they go and scratch themselves and they get rid of the parasites. They have a very different, very interesting system. And their milk is very valuable in certain products like sütlak and yogurt. So this has been going on and this has been beautifully going on. It still does, actually. But kaimati, uh, it has to be from buffalo milk. So this Istanbul was one of the centers in Turkey for buffalo breeding. The airport breaks it for the reason, and also the canal will break it for the reason that these farmers, they don't, like the buffaloes really walk around. They don't stay in an enclosed land. The industrial one do, but these ones. So now they cannot go in and out because everything is like protected security zone. It was always the belonged to the treasury. It never belonged to the farmers themselves, but it's harder to make a route at this moment. And so we found these farmers. We met them. We spoke to them. I had buffaloes put their faces on my belly. They smell horrible, but they're beautiful animals. Uh, we did all the tours with them and we learned about the association of buffalo breeders and we started talking about them, how to help them. Do they need our help, by the way? I mean, art saving these people is a funny thought to me. In any case, so we did our best. Uh, what cooking sections aim for, they produce things, but they never sell them. They don't call themselves artists. They don't accept to be part of collections. They try to leave a legacy, as they call it. So with these buffaloes, we went to one of the farmers' land. We dig, dug a hole. They didn't, I'm being extremely open, they didn't need it very much, but we tried to give some more water for the buffaloes. So we, we opened the pond for them. And with the mud, at least 50% of this mud, is now turned into 1,000 sütlaç and yogurt pots. So what you will see in the exhibition space is these pots. But then we worked with Sarkan Taijan because he had this road between two seeds. And now he added a layer for our buffalo trail. So we're reprinting the maps, which means you can take the map and go on your own and meet the buffaloes if you like. Because cooking sections like to include many more people in the process, by the way. And we spoke with Mutfak Sanatları Akademisi, a cooking school, the best one according to Defne, who was leading us on this. So now we will try. They have in their curriculum, 
they will have something with buffalo milk. And if they, they can open this section up, I hope that this will be the funny little thing that salt will cover for three years of buffalo milk from Muslim so that they can, you know, teach these students about buffaloes, buffaloes in Istanbul, whatever. And the pots in the end, we're trying to decide what will happen to them. We were thinking they could go to the association so that they will be in use. We would like to have something more effective. We don't know the way at this moment that people can become more aware of, of the produce in Istanbul. During the exhibition, people who would come, probably, this is what we're thinking, the security, our team, they will have this permission to give one sütlaç to one person every day, which we will buy from the corner here in Beyoğlu, where uh, there's this little shop. They still do everything with buffalo milk, but now the sütlaç they make in Turkey is less buffalo milk, more cow milk. So from this space, we will buy 90 sütlaç in the beginning to support them. And then every day when you walk inside the exhibition, if there's someone like you who's really wanting to learn more and reading everything and looking at the pots, spending more time in the exhibition space, the security will have the right to go and say, I give you this ticket. You could go to Östüt, which is not the Östüt, the, the big one, the local Östüt here, and have a sütlaç on salt. So this is like how one project is. This was great. And also it was a great example of practice. Of practice, exactly. Exactly, that's the dimension. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I hear you. This was amazing, Merich. Thank you so much. Thank you. No, I enjoyed it as well. Thank you for joining us and staying until the very end. Ahali Conversations are produced by Asla Altay and Sarpren Gözer. And with this episode, Daria Yildiz joins our team as associate producer. This episode was engineered by Elif Soğuksu with music by Group Ses. Make sure to check out our show notes to find out more about what we've discussed today. There's an extensive list of links and information down there. You can also visit us at ahali.space or get some visual insights at Instagram via ahali.podcast. I guess it goes without saying, but we really appreciate you spreading the word and supporting us by subscribing, rating, following or whatever works for you. This was Ahali Conversations with me, Jan Altay, and we hope to see you next time.